This evening's passage is in Habakkuk 3, verses 1 to 19, which can be found on page 786 of the Church Bibles. This is a song that Habakkuk the prophet writes for the people of God to sing after he has heard God speak about the final judgment that he will bring on evil in the world. So I'm going to read Habakkuk. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigineoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and of your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In the wrath, of, in the wrath remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered, the everlasting hills sunk low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rose on your rode on your horses or your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Well, good evening, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, whether you're just with us today, or are just back, having been away, or are just here the whole time, it's good to be together to look at God's Word. Uh, you'll need a Bible and a handout for the next little while, uh, but first, why don't I pray and we will get into Habakkuk chapter 3. Let me pray. Father, your Word says in Psalm 12, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Father, we praise you for your word. Thank you that it is perfect and flawless and pure. And Lord, you change us through it. So we pray that you would do that as we hear from it this evening. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is it about certain characters or people that, that draw us towards them, that, that make us listen to them or support them? Think about it. When you watch a film or read a book or watch sport or the news, there are just people within that that we just think, I really like them. There's just something about them that draws me towards them. I'm rooting for them to win. I really hope nothing bad happens to them when they open that door that they really shouldn't open. Why do we do that? Well, often it's because we can relate to that person in a certain way. They're kind of like me. They're just normal. Who they are is just believable. And we're drawn to that. And so when the relatable person becomes slightly less relatable, which does happen, doesn't it? We're far less drawn to them, aren't we? Something's changed that's made them not as relatable as before. And I wonder if that's kind of like Habakkuk the prophet. Look down with me at chapter 3, verse 2 that Beatrice read for us. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk prays, God, I know you will put an end to evil and injustice in the world. Please do that. You said you will bring justice. Please do that. Please put everything right. And please save me when judgment comes. That's what Habakkuk prays at the start of this song that he writes. And that maybe feels a whole lot less relatable than how Habakkuk started this book. It maybe doesn't sound like what we would pray or think. But it's to this point that this book wants to take us. God wants to change us, just like Habakkuk, to be able to say that we trust the Lord to put the world right, to bring justice on all that is wrong, and to be able to even have joy despite all the wrong that happens in the world and to us. That's where God wants to take us. So that's why we're thinking about the journey that Habakkuk goes on. You can follow along on the handout. Each of those three points in bold will be about 10 minutes, just so you know. Um, well, if you haven't yet been acquainted with Habakkuk, he's writing in the 7th century BC, probably from Jerusalem, and he intensely feels the evil and the godlessness that surrounds him, not from the nations out there, but from within the people of God. God, why won't you do anything? Why is it as if you are turning a blind eye to this? Are you turning a blind eye to this? Notice, these aren't bitter prayers, but the genuine questions that someone who trusts God has. And they're pretty, pretty relatable, right? 
God, why won't you do anything about people who have abused positions of leadership in the global church? God, why won't you do anything about people who lead others astray by twisting your words? God, why won't you do anything about the persecution your people experience? That Habakkuk of chapter 1 probably feels a lot more relatable, doesn't he? And when God answers Habakkuk in chapter 1 saying that he is going to do something, that judgment is in the post, that the Babylonians are on the way, and God has sent them to destroy Jerusalem. And so Habakkuk, relatable as ever, asks God, how can that be okay? How can you use them who are so much worse than us? How can you wipe out your people, the ones you have made promises to? Will the world just be chaos? Will nations keep struggling over power and treating other people horrendously? And don't we have questions like that? Thinking about our world today, we pray lots for what's going on in Ukraine, the injustice all of that is, or Afghanistan, or North Korea, and we could go on for a very long time. Why doesn't it seem like God is doing anything about these things in the world? Will he just let it go on? Is there an end in sight to all of this? Well, Habakkuk has heard there is, chapter 3, verse 2. I have heard the report of you. God has said what he's going to do, and it means wrath and mercy. In chapter 2, God tells Habakkuk that he will deal with evil and rescue his people in the end. The Babylonians of Habakkuk's day will face judgment for what they have done. But that's not all. That's not all. Because this book points to the day still to come in God's calendar when not just Babylon, but every person ever faces judgment for the evil they have done. When Jesus, the judge, appears. And in chapter 3, verse 2, Habakkuk recognizes that this judgment includes him. In wrath, remember mercy, he prays. While Habakkuk demands judgment to be done over there, he also recognizes that he deserves judgment for what's in here. And we must realize that as well, that that if God will deal with all evil... He has to deal with us, too. But God has told us in advance how to be safe. Think about this week uh, with all the weather warnings down south. We were told, warning, take appropriate measures. It's going to be very, very hot. Put on sun cream, stay inside. I'm not sure many people did. I imagine there were a lot of red faces and shoulders and backs. But there was a warning. Take appropriate measures. Respond appropriately. And God has warned us. He's told us 
the appropriate measures to take ahead of that day, to ask for mercy, to trust him and live, to have faith in God, to rescue you through Jesus. Habakkuk's gone from demanding judgment on others to realizing he deserves judgment himself. And he's abandoned his favorite piece of punctuation, the question mark. Before chapter 3, he's used it loads, but it's not like that in chapter 3. He's moved from questioning to quietness, from questioning to quiet trust, from why won't you do anything, Lord, to Lord, please do what you say you will do. Please bring justice in the world when Jesus comes back, and please save me when that comes. Do you hear the difference? From questioning to quiet trust. And it's the middle bit of chapter 3 that's going to grow that trust in us. If chapter 2 was God saying what he will do, then chapter 3 is Habakkuk reflecting that God can do what he said he would do. That God is able to deal with evil and rescue his people in the end. Verse 3 to 15. These verses are going to grow our trusting and rejoicing that we'll end with. They're what make that response possible. They're what God has given us to produce that in us. If trusting and rejoicing are two basins, then verse 3 to 15 is the water supply that fills those up. So let's get into it. Do clock back in for this if you've drifted. I totally get it. It's a, it's a Sunday evening. Um, verses 3 to 15. God can deal with evil and rescue his people in the end. He's able to. Look with me at verse 3. God came from Timan and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Did you notice that this song is written as if it's already happened? It's as if God has already judged evil. And in a sense, that's true. Since there are loads of times in the Bible where God brings judgment. And they're all little versions of what he will ultimately do when Jesus comes back. Think about the Exodus, for instance, when in the 13th century BC, God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt by bringing judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And I think Habakkuk has that stuff in mind when he's writing this song. What God has done in the past informs what he'll do in the future. God has a proven track record of delivering justice on wickedness and evil. 
which means he's able to do it again. When it comes to dealing with evil and rescuing his people, God can sort it himself. God can sort it himself. And when he sorts it, it won't be missed. Verse 3. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. In a world that doubts God's existence, and definitely his ability to do anything about the world's biggest problems, well, all creation knows and takes notice when its creator appears. And he possesses the resources in himself Verse 4, his brightness was like the light, rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. All power in this world is derived from the Lord, even that of the mightiest entities. Think of the most powerful nation or corporation you can think of. Well, that power has been given to them by God's. And when God brings full and final judgment, he will not be using empires as instruments of judgment as he has chosen to do in the past. He can sort it himself. Look at chapter 3, verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. It's not an army that precedes the Lord when he appears to judge. It's plagues and pestilences just like in Exodus with frogs and flies and hail and pitch darkness. Who else has that entourage? Folks, to compare the military might of Babylon or of Rome or even of superpowers in our world today, well, they will not stand when the Lord appears because he has all power. And he has all knowledge. Remember what Habakkuk was asking God at the start of this book. Do you not hear me? Do you not see what's going on? Well, verse 6, God stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. God sees. God measures. God knows exactly what goes on in this world and he will do something about it. And that's so reassuring, because lots of injustice is done in the dark, isn't it? God knows about it, and will punish that evil. God can sort it himself. We trust he will do it then, so we trust him in the meantime. God can sort it himself. Let's read on. Come with me to verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. 
for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I don't know about you, but I'm really glad Habakkuk asks that question in verse 8. God, are you angry at the sea? Because it gets mentioned loads in what we just read, and it kind of sounds like he is. Is it the sea you're angry with? And I think the answer is no. Let's think about it together. Just notice how all creation is responding when God comes to execute justice on evil. The mountains writhe. The deep lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still. It's as if creation's hands are raised in surrender. They know who's arrived. It's like in a Western, when the sheriff comes into the town, walks into the bar, looking for the outlaw, all the people acknowledge who has just walked in. They have their hands raised in the air, in deference to the one who really runs the show. And when the Lord Jesus arrives, Everest, the Atlantic Ocean, the sun and moon will be like this. They acknowledge that their creator is here. And just like the sheriff coming for the outlaw, God has in his sights all who have done evil, all who have wronged others, all who have promoted injustice. And that demonstrates how seriously God takes sin in his world, how seriously God takes injustice in his world, because he is coming to end the empires of his enemies. God can end his enemies' empires. Be that Babylon or Rome or the anti-God world today, or the anti-God life built by someone who rejects God. Every injustice, every anti-God power brought down in the end. God's done it in the past. At the Exodus, he crushed Pharaoh, and later he crushed the king of Babylon. God can end his enemies' empires, and in the end, he will crush Satan the head of the house of the wicked, in verse 13. Satan has been dealt the fatal blow at the cross. He has been defeated, but in the end, his head will be crushed once and for all, finally. God can end his enemies' empires. And just because he hasn't yet doesn't mean he won't, and doesn't mean that he can't. When Jesus comes back, all chaos comes to an end. The raging sea that is the world 
becomes a still lake. All the schemes against God and his people, by the world or by Satan, all those purposes are turned back on God's enemies like a boomerang. Verse 14, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. And so we don't need to take matters into our own hands in this world. We don't carry swords with us, but we hold the gospel message out to a world that needs it because God can end his enemies' empires, and he will when Jesus returns. And so isn't it incredible that there is rescue from this, undeserved rescue, because when God ends his enemies' empires, he also saves sinners. Look at verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. God can save sinners. If you're a Christian here this evening, you have switched sides. You've abandoned your empire building. And anyone else can too, if they trust Jesus. God can save sinners. On that day, Jesus will come for you and gather you into safety forever. And isn't it great to know that you're on the winning team? That even though it doesn't feel like it now, and it doesn't look like it now, the people that are with Jesus are on the winning side. You've switched sides. You've abandoned your empire. God can save sinners. Okay, folks, are we okay? Let's look at what all of this means for us. Firstly, trust in God while you wait. Folks, God can bring this justice, and he will. Just because he hasn't yet doesn't mean he won't and doesn't mean he can't. Verse 16, Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Despite the coming Babylonians, filling Habakkuk with dread, serious fear, he can trust God while he waits. Despite the scariness of the world, the injustices of the world, scandals in the church, false speech about Jesus, God's people being brutally treated in parts of the world, we can trust in God while we wait. The day will come when God deals with evil and rescues his people in the end. The Babylonians didn't come for years. God's right judgment didn't come for years in Habakkuk's day. And so the same with the return of Jesus. 
it has been a while. But we can quietly trust that God will do it. God will come. We can trust God with that. He knows what he's doing. He's able to do it. He will do it. And so we can trust him. I think Habakkuk was a a weary believer at the start of this book. And I'm sure he was still at the end. But what God tells him keeps him going. It's summer. There'll be lots of us who are weary just now, conscious of the evil in the world, conscious of our own sin, conscious of difficult stuff in our lives, longing for God to do something about it. Well, he can. We can trust him while we wait. And isn't waiting made easier when you know the day will come, when you know the one you are waiting for absolutely will appear. Trust in God while you wait. And we don't want to downplay that that's a difficult thing to do. It can be really hard to do that. And so is rejoicing. We don't find that easy either do we? Rejoice in God when the world gets worse. We're so affected by our circumstances in life, aren't we? And that makes sense. These things are real. But isn't there reason to rejoice in God, whatever the circumstance? At the end of this book, Habakkuk is able to say, even if things get worse, he will rejoice. He says, even if we lose everything, I will rejoice in the Lord. And that's hard. But folks, this book wants to gently say that there are reasons to rejoice. Haven't we seen those? On that day, If you know Jesus, you have this Lord on your side. You will be safe. Today, you have this Lord on your side. He hears you like he heard Habakkuk. He speaks to you through his words like he spoke to Habakkuk. He knows you and you know him. And as we find trusting and rejoicing difficult, it's so great that this book finishes the way it does. Look with me at verse 19. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. God has all the resources. And he provides the resources you need. He will help you to trust him and take joy in him. And with this we'll close. He gives you deer's feet. Did you see that in verse 19? What's all that about? We'll put it this way. Deer have feet that mean they can leap over apparently 
unassailable heights. Deer just have the feet to do it. They have the resources. And we've been presented with some really big, seemingly unassailable heights in this book. Think about it. Injustice in the world, the persecution of God's people, potentially worsening circumstances in life, really big, seemingly unassailable. How will we keep going? Well, the Lord is our strength. And haven't we seen that he is really strong? There is reason to rejoice in God, even when things get worse, even when the world gets worse. If opposition to Jesus increases in this country, if there's a real period of of very few people responding to the gospel, if the world keeps going on as it has, we can rejoice still in the God of our salvation. And so we pray that as God took Habakkuk to that point, that he would take us there as well. And we're going to sing of that together in a moment with these words. Rejoice. He is worthy of all praise. When you cry to him, he hears your voice. In the midst of suffering, he will help you sing, rejoice. I'm going to pray as the band come up. Um, Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all that you've said to us in your word. Please help us now to sing of that, and please plant your word deep in our hearts. Please would it change us. Please would it help us to rejoice as we're about to sing. In Jesus' name, amen.